I hope that I shall never forget. That everything that takes place in this chamber goes out somewhere to strike a human heart. 75 years on, does Dame Enid Lyons still matter? The Menzies Research Centre this week staged a reenactment of Enid Lyons' famous maiden speech, the first ever speech delivered in the House of Representatives. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk to the actress who delivered the speech, brilliant young Canberra actress called Lexi Seculus. But firstly, Nick, why do we put these reenactments on? Well, I think the first answer is some speeches are so good they have to be given twice, uh, even if it's 75 years apart. Suddenly, uh, a moment in history is brought to life before your eyes. You actually, in this case, saw the speech uh, given in the very spot in the chamber of the House of Representatives where the original was given almost 75 years ago. So why is it important? Well, there's clearly an element of history in it being the first woman. Damien Lyons was a woman with a tremendous intellect, tremendous experience of life. She was a mother of 12 uh, and, uh, and, and the, the wife, of course, of a former prime minister and somebody who went, later went on to contribute as a, as a cabinet minister, the first woman cabinet minister. And, but in the hearing the speech, you see that there's enormous substance behind what she's saying and clear uh, messages that sort of jump across the years. Well, I, I think I've read the speech three or four times and was impressed by it. She's got, clearly got a very good turn of phrase and, and is good on values and policy. But, um, but it wasn't until I saw it reenacted, Nick, that I realised just quite how powerful it was. And I, afterwards, I asked Jane Hume how she responded, and this is what she said. But it wasn't until tonight when I actually heard Lexi deliver that maiden speech that it really hammered home to me just how many of those uh, values and issues that Dame Enid Lyons spoke of were so timeless. You know, the whole Menzian concept of uh, lifters, not leaners. And it was preempted by Dame Enid Lyons. Now, that's a pretty cheeky thing to say. She's mm. saying that uh, Enid Lyons preempted the. Uh, the, the forgotten people or, the, you know, the Menzian uh, tradition. What do you think, Nick? No, I don't think so. I think she was part of that tradition. Um, and part of that is, is the liberal philosophy that, that uh, Robert Menzies clarified so well in forming the party, that this was a, you know, it's a philosophy that says it's better to encourage and empower individuals to try and achieve and do better in their own lives than to get the government to try and orchestrate uh, society. And I agree with with Senator Hume that, that when you when you sat there, and I wasn't in the chamber, I was watching it from outside, but some people you know, came out of the chamber almost spellbound by this. Uh, and it's because I think seeing a real person give that speech with, with you know, great skill, as, as uh, Lexi Seculus did, it, 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 it's very different from seeing it on the printed page. Yes, it is, that's right. Um, I, I later asked uh, another former senator, Bronwyn Bishop, what her take on the speech was, and she had quite a different take, of course. Let, let's listen to that. Women have the opportunity uh, to, to do anything they really want. Um, and I've always had the attitude, if it's a bit harder because you're a woman, don't waste your energy whinging about it. Uh, use your energy to overcome that difficulty because most of the women in the world don't have that opportunity. When I hear about targets and quotas, I get angry. I just believe in the merit principle. Now, in the speeches afterwards, 
uh, Julie Bishop said that uh, we needed targets uh, for female representation. What's your take on it, Nick? Uh, should it be merit? Should we have targets, quotas? What's the point? What's the what's the go? Um, well, we came, we brought a report out on this a couple of years ago. We looked at this uh, some of the facts and figures behind this, um, and we did come out in favour of targets for reasons that I will argue in a minute. But I do I think first of all we have to recognise that. Uh, the spirit at the time, there was a huge feeling, if you read the press in the, in the year or so before that election, uh, you listen to the debate that was going on at that time, there was a real feeling that, that there should be women in Parliament, that women were, you know, there were, what, uh, tens of thousands of women enlisted to, to serve in the, the forces, others were working, you know, there's a great sense of empowerment in World War II. And the other thing that's happening, incidentally, at that time is the introduction of more and more convenient home uh, you know gadgets washing machines are coming in they're getting more sophisticated the introduction of washing powder all these things we take for granted these days but they transformed uh, the home life it made it made the, it much less necessary for a woman to be sort of chained to the place for, for 70 hours a week so these things are happening and there's this great movement for change but it's very different to what people look at it now it's not about rights it's not about um, you know revolution it's just about if we believe in equality of opportunity as liberals fundamentally do then you want you, that should apply to everybody, men and women. And that's the way Robert Menzies phrased it. He said there's no reason why a woman shouldn't stand in Parliament. In fact, it's a very good thing that they do, but there's also no reason why I should vote for her just because she's a woman. He would have rejected this tokenism. But the reason we, we've come to targets is, is I think, because uh, you know, in a modern world, a Parliament should reflect the world outside. And, and if, if women have got more outgoing attitudes if more women are working i mean we've got more women graduating from university than men that's got to be reflected in the nature of the parliament one aspect of the speech that seems to be most open to interpretation is just how much of a feminist uh, enid lyons was does does she well she clearly believes that there's a massive difference between men and women and do feminists still adhere to that i think mm. that's the key question now and mm. i asked something like that of uh, Senator Jane Hume. Let's have a listen. Dame Enid Lyons was extraordinary. I mean, 12 children, widowed at 41 and entered Parliament at 46. All of that experience, all of that unique perspective, and yet all of that uh, political turmoil that she'd been through with her own husband, and of course that uniquely uh, female experience of being a widow, during the Second World War and having sons go to war, you know, all of that is a truly unique feminine experience and perspective. And that resonates to all women today because we bring to the parliament a unique experience and a unique perspective that should be valued, that should be used uh, more effectively when we make policy, when we uh, you know, speak to our electorates. So, a different perspective mm. to take to the electorate. What do you think, Nick? Controversial. Mm. Look, no, I, 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 I don't. I, I want to. I want to kick back against the idea women have a different perspective, a unique perspective, as, as Senator Hume framed it. Sure, they have a different perspective. I mean, I've got a different perspective to you. We come from different countries, you know, and, and but we we come with our different experiences. I think all I'd say is that Parliament should reflect the broad range of experience, and clearly. 
you know, the, the life experience of women is often very distinct from that of men, you know, because of the inevitable role in childbirth and all those things that we can't change. So I, I just think we want the broad spectrum of things. And, and with, with Edith Lyons, you know, there was, she said in her speech, and Menzies reinforced it when he spoke about her and, and other women, was that they bring a sharp understanding, for instance, of the economics of the household. Uh, and, and and therefore perhaps have a have a more down to earth feeling about e- the economy and jobs and security than men. Uh, but look, I mean, it's impossible to argue that, that the arrival of women in Parliament hasn't been a good thing. And I find it hard to argue that we shouldn't have more of them. Really. Well, that female perspective—it's not a million miles from John Howard's assertion that the family is the greatest social unit ever devised by mankind. So, mm. you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, we do come from a similar perspective. I, I, I do, I, I do like to think that we underestimate the difference between men and women, though. And I think um, men and women do bring different perspectives that that are, are equally valuable. And mm. I think if we do. Uh, if we are able to encourage more women into Parliament, I think it should be on the on their own terms, not ours. Yeah, and the, the other point here is that it's the you know the attitude to housework, uh, which sounds a little bit patronising, perhaps in some of the things that Enid Lyons to to the said in the mod, to the modern era. But in her time, this was something heroic. You know, it was something she, it she was. had this enormous a sense of enormous responsibility in building up or bringing up her own family properly and and keeping the hearth and home. I mean, there's a fantastic headline in the Sydney Morning Herald when she's elected, you know, when the count is finally come through and it says, uh, Enid Lyons elected to Parliament, here's news while ironing. That, that might be a euphemism <laughs> for here's news while washing nappies, for all we know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this, but is the I, era, this is the era before disposable nappies. I mean, it's, it's a life that we know very little about, to be honest. No, and, and also there's a question of choice here. I mean, of course women should be uh, uh, and are empowered to do you know, just about whatever they want these days. And I say more of them are uh, graduating from university than men. But if women choose, you know, to not to uh, go, you know, not to have a full-time career but to raise a family full-time, that's their choice. And some people say it's a very good choice. And I think the challenge for uh, the centre-right of politics is to devise policies that recognises that women can take either choice and it's fine and they'll be supported. You know, it's, it's difficult... In, in, in crude public policy terms often to get a policy that assists women in the workforce and doesn't discriminate against women who want to stay at home. And John Howard wrestled with this and, and did it probably better than any recent Prime Minister, but it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle to get that you know, public policy in those areas around child support, around taxation, around childcare. That, that, that are fair to women who make both choices. I think it's almost impossible, to be honest, because the average family home now is the price of a, of a dual-income family. I mean, you just mm. um, families can't survive on one income anymore if they want to live in a decent house in a, in a reasonable suburb. Um, but speaking of families and the next generation, I bumped into Victoria Nichols, who's the president of the Geelong Young Liberals branch Uh, and obviously this speech was intended especially for her because she's the next generation she confessed to me that she uh, was in a room full of women on whom she has girl crushes so uh, let's hear that so I was invited by Senator Jane Hume who I invited to an event in Geelong uh, a few months ago Um, and I've got so many girl crushes in politics and um, half of them were here tonight and 
Um, I've campaigned for Sarah Henderson, my local member, who's now the most marginal seat in Australia. And I think it, um, seeing such hard-working members of Parliament, Michaelia Cash, Shirley Bishop, Kelly O'Dwyer, uh, it's inspirational to see um, the things that they're doing and the influence that they're having on um, creating a more gender-diverse, dare I say those words, um, element to Parliament. So there's a, there's a bright young Liberal, um, obviously quite ambitious, um, mm. surrounded by all the right talent and clearly very inspired, mate. The future looks good, doesn't it? Well, I think it does. Uh, and, and it is great to see you know, young people get inspired by, by people in politics when so often we get so cynical about it. Yeah, OK. So um, I also bumped into one of our very own directors, Paul Espy, who had some uh, pretty... Um, serious thoughts on the speech he obviously loved it as well uh he says that the enid Lyons speech and the forgotten people speech should be used more effectively by the party let's have a listen there's our challenge in my opinion i think if you could pick the eyes out of the forgotten people speech and enid Lyons speech tonight put them on two sheets of paper and put them in front of of uh, pre-selection candidates and interrogate them about it make them think about fundamentals then maybe we're slightly better off when it comes to executing in government than we are today. So that goes back to what Jane said at the start that these speeches uh, really do um, appeal to universal principles. Mm. Um, I'm not sure we hear that very often anymore. I mean I don't want to sound too cynical about contemporary politics but you know these are speeches where we're People did talk about the big issues and, and, mm. and they got quite philosophical. I, I don't know if we mm. hear that much anymore, do we? No, we don't. Robert Menzies' speeches in particular, I think the reason that they resonate so strongly is he, he rarely talked about you know the, the daily political issue. I mean, he didn't have to go out there and comment on you know the latest nonsense in you know football or anything like that. And then today we expect them to. But look, I mean, the, the, but I, I think it's an interesting point that Paul raises because we have... You know, we've, this is the second one we've done, as I say, and we, we've got to do more because they, they, they are terrific occasions and very effective, in my view. But I, I still, I still encounter people saying, "Well, why are you doing this? You know, why are you focusing on the historical? Shouldn't we be looking at the present and looking forward?" Uh, and it's hard, I think, uh, f- to to explain, or I find it hard to explain why it's important because it's not it's not just a historical exercise, is it? I mean, it's about looking at at, at eternal human problems and how they're interpreted through the years and that will give us a better understanding how to deal with things today and and you know as, as you heard in those earlier extracts you know the people did find this on the night spoke to today's problems in a very cut through kind of a way so i i think if you don't understand your history you, you don't get you don't understand the present and you won't get the future right that's just a fundamental so it's not that we've got to be immersed in dusty books but we need to look back and think about those the people that came before us and people who we should look up to as great pioneers. So just to finish off, here is, uh, here is Olivia again uh, talking about whether or not young people um, pay enough attention to our past. Young people today probably don't reflect on our past as much as we should. Um, not, in, not maybe for inspiration, but even how to improve on the future, I think, as well. So um, a fantastic speech and I think it should be absolutely remembered as one of the best. So hopefully one day, mate, we'll look back on this podcast and say, oh, Prime Minister Olivia Nichols, the first <laughs> liberal female prime minister. We, uh, you, you heard it here yeah. first, folks. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah.
Okay, now let's listen to uh, a little part of the speech, and after that, Nick Cater will be talking to Lexi Seculus, the actress who performed Enid Lyons. I, like him, have pondered on this subject, not with my feet upon the mantelpiece, but knee-deep in shawls and feeding bottles. I have pondered it, surrounded by those who, by their very numbers, have done quite a good deal to boost the population of Australia. <laughs> I believe that I have at least tried out some of the theories which would make for a better population, and that I know some of the difficulties that present themselves to any person who, in these days, desires to rear a family. So, Lexi, welcome to the Water Cooler podcast. First of all, congratulations on a magnificent performance on Tuesday. Uh, it must have been uh, nerve-wracking to be standing there and knowing the history about standing in that place and the job you were doing, was it? Yes, yes, it certainly was. I found as I rehearsed more and more in the space, in the chamber, um, that's when the size and the scale of uh, the role and what I needed to do uh, hit me. Normally, uh, it's at the beginning of rehearsals. You are met with a, a wall of pressure. You see how big the task is ahead of you at the beginning because usually at the first read-through, um, you get your voice out and you hear how great all the other people are and you hear all the creatives give their opinions and, and, and you see the costume that you're going to be in. So usually, first up, you see how massive the role will be and you, you think, God, I've, I've got to meet this. Um, and for me, it kind of happened in reverse, I suppose. Just because the more my voice was in that chamber, I realised how I had to fill it, not just technically, um, but then as I began to think, of course, and the people who are coming, who will have there on, on the night. Um, so, yeah, it happened, happened for me, me in reverse. And then I was certainly um, overwhelmed uh, um, on, on the night of how many people there know me as Lexi. Um, and I, I, I became quite paranoid at, at just two points that um, I wasn't doing Enid. I didn't want, I really wanted people to see and hear Enid. I was very worried that too much Lexi might mm. be there in the room, which I felt was, dis that would be dishonouring Enid. Mm. Um, and mm. I've never had that come over me whenever I've performed. I've never been concerned that, that I would not be honouring the character. Yeah, well, I, I felt, I, I, particularly early on, you could see nervousness. Now, I didn't know whether that was genuine nervousness on your part or whether that mm. was acted nervousness because obviously, you know, Enid Lyons must have been pretty nervous on yes. that occasion. Yes, so she talks in Among the Carrying Crows uh, a lot about her nerves and she's very critical of, of herself uh, and, and her phrasing because, of course, you know, her use of voice and her oratory skills were so particular and so superb. Um, so I thought it was important that I have a nod in some way of what she was feeling uh, at the time. But of course, as a performer, it's very easy to access your own nerves. You just let it, um, you just sit in it. Mm. So there was nothing that I, I didn't need to hide uh, my nervousness at all, but particularly that moment when I came came in and do the acknowledgement to the, to the speaker I, and the walk I, and the way that I was sitting and the way that I looked only at the speaker at the very beginning there, I thought that was important to show uh, an extreme, she's trying to concentrate, just wants to start, just wants to get it out. And she talks about how she was un unbelievably nervous at the beginning, but then she began to feel as she went on that everybody was there to encourage her. Everybody was there listening to her and she felt the warmth of her audience. Mm. And I hope that I was able to... Um, move into that and, and transition into that. Mm. You were giving this performance 
in front of uh, maybe two dozen people who actually had knew and had heard Damien Edline speak, including mm. close members of her own family. Mm. Uh, and afterwards, I thought one of the most uh, important tributes was from those people, from the family, who said, you got the voice just right. Mm. How hard was that? Well, thankfully, that was the first thing that I started work on. Um, so that I had a couple of months uh, preparation for. And I made the decision very, very early um, that because her voice was so unique and because we have a recording of her voice doing that speech, um, it was essential that I um, I honour it or mark it or, or, or meet it uh, in, in the work. Um, and I find that work quite fun. Uh, it was also so it actually had a double double effect for me um, you know any actor needs to meet the given circ- all the given circumstances of the character that they're doing and the biggest given circumstance of course is that it's 75 years ago mm. and so the um, accent and voice work that I did not only meant that I could be particularly Enid but also it sounds very much of, of the era um, so I um, there's a series of symbols it's called the international phonetic alphabet where there's a little symbol for each phoneme of of, of english and um i was just fortunate enough because i had a classical um, drama school um, education and because i went over to another country with another accent i had to do a lot of work um on recognizing where my accent um yeah was was particularly australian and when i needed to lose it and and change it so I guess I've got a skill now, I suppose, in my mm. toolkit. Um, and so I have above above my script, or, it, you know, it's above her speech. It's in big print with double spacing. So on the top of it is uh, my notations of how it is that she says certain vowel sounds and even consonants as well. So um, that there, yeah, that was... That was fun work to do. Well, as you say, we do have a recording of the original speech. Let's listen to a little bit of that now. It would be well, perhaps, to go back a little while and look for the reasons for the decline of population during the last 50 or 60 years. Two main reasons are ascribed. The first, the growth of industrialism and the changed conditions resulting therefrom. Population became urban instead of rural, and the conditions in which children were brought up became less and less suitable. People were crowded, housing was inadequate, and the large families went to the wall. Okay, Lexi, your turn now. It would be well, perhaps, to go back a little while and look for the reasons for the decline of population during the last 50 or 60 years. Two main reasons are ascribed. The first, the growth of industrialism and the changed conditions resulting therefrom. Population became urban instead of rural and the conditions in which children were brought up became less and less suitable. People were crowded, housing was inadequate and the large families went to the wall. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm not... I'm, I'm, 
I'm the last person to talk about this because I haven't yet mastered the Australian accent, <laughs> the current one, let alone the 1943 one. But look, one thing I heard in, in the way you pronounced the word from there, that, that mm. was something that one of the Lyons family said to me afterwards, you got the R, the rolling R. Yes, yeah. So she has this wonderful, it's called a, a tapped R. So she just, um, uh, yeah, in, in from, um, and when she says the word era, um, when even here in ascribed, you, she just um, she just taps the 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 tip of the tongue, um, which um, is very very common in this uh, accent, which is called heightened received pronunciation. And and those are all the little um, that that's the accent um, where she has uh, her vowel changes as well. So the 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 a vowel, the uh, it's called the back to back vowel, and she has it very high in her in her mouth. So that's why she says. Um, 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 national um, character back. It would be well to go back a little while, um, and she also has that wonderful over-aspirated wh. So she says which, where. Um, there's the tapped r sound as well, and then um, everyone's favourite, which this is the section of this accent that often people take the Mickey out of. It's the it's the schwe sound at the end of adverbs. So very awfully funny. Um, But then, of course, she has some very Australian sounds. So even just in the two words, large family. So large and and a lot of the long vowels, broom, they're very Australian, the way she says them. Mm. But then there's this mix of – it's so interesting that it's not a mix of uh, uh, just received pronunciation, uh, you know, a a general uh, English accent. It's heightened uh, received pronunciation. Mm. And I would assume she may have um, learnt that during her elocution lessons – um, because that would have been regarded as the sound. Um, a lot of people claim that that accent was developed around the same time that radio was developed because it's so crisp and clean and all the sounds, a lot of English accents sit at the very front of the mouth, but the heightened received pronunciation really brings all the sounds. So It's so clipped, so neat, so tidy um, that a lot of people, a lot of voices and linguists think that it was developed and encouraged for um, for yeah for radio, so that you had a great relationship and your vowels were really neat, tidy, short, and could hit the microphone right in front of mm. you. Yeah. And I think one of the problems we have about this is we don't actually have too many records of the Australian accent before radio, of course, because the it, yes. technology that made radio possible exactly was linked to the technology that made recording the voice properly. Yes, yeah. Uh, and the other thing I found, uh, we, we when we were last year when we were doing Robert Menzies' famous uh, forgotten people address working with Peter Cousins on reproducing that Mm. we didn't have a recording of that original Mm. address even though it was a radio address and must have I think been recorded on phonograph uh, recordings to be shipped around Mm. Uh, I mean the the landline technology wasn't up to sending it over to Perth for instance at that Mm. stage but the technology made a huge difference because as soon as you get to 1950s with the advent of tape uh, there are many, many more recordings of Robert Menzies from that period. Mm. So it's it, the technology is interesting. Uh, the, we came across last year when we were working with Peter Cousins on the Forgotten People speech, a lot of these issues, there were some similarities in the Menzies accent and, yes. and Enid Lyons. I mean, I remember picked up and working with Peter on the word national, which I think is more like national. Yes, yeah. That, how would you say yeah. that? National. National. Yeah, national. So the it's the at vowel. Um, so it, I guess it sits instead of a uh, at uh, national. It comes forward and sits even higher in in the uh, in the mouth. But if you if you're too tight in the in your face, you'll sound like a kiwi. So you have to be careful that you don't come out national. 
can't can't be like that. There's got to be enough resonating space, but that that yeah, at foul and fact fact back that national. Um, it's such a it's such an interesting. Um, yeah, such an interesting accent, and it means it's so funny how much it means to the listener. As as you're saying that the family, then I'm so pleased. I'm I'm really pleased that the family felt um, family, the family um, <laughs> felt that I was able to to get elements of of her. It, it seems to be one of the mistakes that's easy to make for the sort of casual listener is to think, well, this is just a, a British accent. It's just like the Queen. Yes, and there's some aspects of it that are, but mm. but it's. It, when you when you analyze it and break it down as you have it actually is a very australian yes accent, it is isn't it? yeah it is it really is um and this is my own personal theory but you can hear in in a lot of um, south australians just the slight um, shadows of, of some of this um, remaining just the vowels being a little bit higher uh, mm. in in the mouth um, that's that's definitely my own personal theory <laughs> well, I think um, there's something in that my experience is mm. that I mean I when I came to Australia nearly, nearly 30 years ago I settled in Adelaide for four years and, oh, and yeah. by the end of it people were quite happy that I was an Australian but as soon as I moved to other states they thought of it as an English accent so yes. I, I can probably pass for Australian in uh, <laughs> in Norwood in, in yes, South Australia yes, but, yeah. but I certainly couldn't in say um, Toowoomba or, no, yeah. or Townsville. You yes. know. It's, it, there is a big variation. I, I'd love to see more work done on this because it, it's a fascinating illustration of a, it. it gives, it's, a, it's a surviving example of our history, isn't it? Mm. Different states would set, settled in different ways at different times. Mm. And accents differ for that, that reason. Yes, yeah. Mm. Um, voices say that there are only three Australian accents, um, broad, general and educated. But I, or bad, I think... like mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fourth category. Um, I think there may be more than three. Um, I, I do a bit of voice work around my, um, around my acting work, so that's why I find it interesting. And obviously I went to the Central School of Speech and Drama, so voice work was a strong, strong focus Overseas. Well, I'd say there's many more than three. I, I, there's a specific one which is, I don't know what you call it, Lebanese Australian, but it's a sort yeah, of Australian true. that you hear on some of those uh, quite funny and raucous comedy shows on, on SBS. You yes, know, with, yeah. There's very clearly a, 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 an accent uh, within some of our uh, migrant populations that's formed over two generations. Yes. That's quite distinct from their home. Uh, it's it's a new strand of English, you know, yes. in essence. Yeah, yes, and it, it's just it really is remarkable I, um, that the, the meaning that we we associate with those sounds, um, and and that's why I think it was quite important to make sure that even if I didn't do all of all of her accent, um, I, I felt that it was really important just to touch on it, just to touch on it, and make sure that I was. Um, pointing to it not mimicking or imitating it but pointing towards it mm. well thank you for bringing uh, not only Damienid Lyons to a new audience but a, I think a, a better appreciation of Australian English and how it's evolved <laughs> oh wonderful I'm so pleased <laughs> thank you Nick thank you so much thank you Lexi